Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, y'all. It's Corey Antonio Rose here, the Right Nowish production intern. We're in the sweaty heat of Pride Month, so there's no better way to celebrate queer Bay Area history than with some of the leaders who are fighting to keep it alive. Like Arya Saeed. In 2017, she co-founded the world's first transgender cultural district right here in San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. We had not seen you know, I think a transgender cultural organization sort of pushing and promoting all that breadth of experience and uh, that we have as people. Aria is that girl. She creates housing opportunities for trans people. She gets folks jobs and works to protect the cultural history of the Tenderloin, a history that predates any bricks thrown at Stonewall. Aria has taken the idea of safe space beyond the clubs and lounges and aims to extend safety across an entire neighborhood. And since this series is all about that, you know I had to pull her in to give us the tea. We're going to learn how the Transgender Cultural District came to be and what it takes to maintain it. Coming up after the break. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, what's up? I'm Pendarvis Harshaw, the host of KQED's Right Nowish podcast. Donations keep independent journalism alive and healthy. And you support outstanding journalism when you support KQED. So if you haven't yet, check out donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. I'm originally from the Pacific Northwest in Northeast Portland. I had transitioned in high school and just was really struggling to find place and often always felt like the odd one out. Everyone in my life at that point had told me to come to San Francisco I will never forget coming to the Tenderloin and seeing two Latina trans women coming out of like a corner store and they had their little, oh my gosh, what are those dogs called? Like Shih Tzus? And they were just getting coffee. And you know, I had never seen that. I had always been the only trans person. And just seeing the normalcy of it. Like I was just like gawking from across the street, like, oh my God, somebody like me. And there's two of them. And they're literally just, you know, two women going to get coffee in the middle of the morning, right? But to me, that was such a big thing because I'd never seen that. And living in the Tenderloin is when I found that experience of home. 
And how has that definition or that understanding of safety changed throughout your time here in San Francisco? I wasn't always safe in San Francisco. I came here as a teenager and I was homeless, doing sex work in the Tenderloin, and I was always in compromising positions in life. When you have housing instability and you're working in survival sex work in an industry that's not legalized in the United States, you fall victim to people taking advantage of you, people attacking you, and there's almost a way that they're sort of allowed to because you have no protections. You find safety in different ways with like chosen family and friends and what have you. The elements of safety that I have now are just so much different. Like um, I'm able to pay my rent. I'm able to have a little bit, a little bit <laughs> left over <laughs> um, after I pay rent. But um, I think those things shape what safety feels like. It's easy to think that the heavy LGBT presence in the Tenderloin just poofed into existence one day, but that's not the case. I never thought to think about why that was. At some point, I had met trans historians like Dr. Susan Schreiker, who told me that there were trans people that had been continuously living in our neighborhood since the 1920s, and that often it was by design. At those times, it was illegal to be trans. It was illegal to quote-unquote cross-dress. And so there were laws in San Francisco that you could not wear more than three articles of clothing belonging to the other sex. But the Tenderloin was like this red-light district, and so the city and law enforcement treated it as a container space. For the last 100 years, it's always been the place you let your guard down and anything can happen. Trans people would move to San Francisco. Trans women would be living in the SROs and the Tenderloin. And at that time, living in the SRO was very glamorous. You know, in the Tenderloin, uh, there used to be a string of jazz clubs. Billie Holiday or Duke Ellington, you know, Ella Fitzgerald, and all these different greats, James Baldwin, and everybody in between were frequently coming to San Francisco from New York and Paris. And many trans women were you know, doing sex work or cabaret shows, burlesque, and living and working in the Tenderloin. And we don't even know it because, you know, who's teaching that in a school? <laughs> Not my school. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there are a lot of places in the cultural district that look pretty unassuming at first glance, but they hold real history. Turk and Taylor, for those who don't know, is the center of the transgender district, but Historically, it's an intersection that had a restaurant called Gene Compton's Cafeteria. Um, and it was a, a late-night diner. Of course, because it was a tenderloin, the girls would come through. But Gene Compton did not like that at all. Um, he wanted, a, you know, a classy establishment, darling. And so the owner would often call the police. The drag queens are here at Turk and Taylor. So frequent were the fights between screaming queens in the 2 to 3 a.m. period that police, even in permissive San Francisco, had had enough and asked an all-night cafeteria to close by midnight. Urban legend is, you know, one hot 
Indian summer, August night in 1966. A trans woman who also was a drag queen, Vicky Marlene, threw a cup of hot coffee in an officer's face right before being arrested and a riot ensued in the cafeteria. You know, drag queens getting their faces smashed into the pavement, you know, trans folks fighting back, queer folks jumping on officers. I mean, it was a riot and it was a catalyst in the United States. We would see Cooper's Donuts in LA, there would be riots in Philly, and then of course the the big Beyonce of the group, Stonewall, which sort of set the, the new wave into the gay liberation movement. Turk and Taylor intersection is still quite historic for us as trans people, um, but the site of the riot is actually owned by a private for-profit prison company called Geo Group, which is literally, I think, what many you know trans and queer folks are fighting against. Alongside Honey Mahogany and Johnetta Johnson, you are one of the three co-founders of the Transgender Cultural District. Why did y'all create it? We started our work in 2016. A luxury developer was coming in and tearing down a building right behind Chuck and Taylor. They had determined that there was no prominent LGBT histories in the neighborhood and had chosen not to work with the queer and trans community. The Tenderloin was sort of this last frontier of development and gentrification. And so that was our fight. Over 75% of the trans folks living in the Tenderloin are living in abject poverty on less than $10,000 a year. To the developer, I mean, they didn't care. They felt like they were, by building, they were adding to the neighborhood or making it better. But I think people forget that there are people living in in the neighborhood who already are marginalized and disenfranchised. And because that looming displacement, where else would they go in terms of safety? Aria, Janetta, and Honey worked with historians like Susan Stryker to establish historical significance. They referenced Compton's, but they also told stories about the first public lectures on homosexuality given in 1899, in the Tenderloin. They shared stories about how the nightclubs and bars have served the community since the 1920s. And during the AIDS crisis, there were organizations in the neighborhood dedicated to giving medical services and support. And even today, the neighborhood still sits along the Pride Parade route. All this advocacy paid off. They established the first official transgender cultural district. It became legally recognized in January 2017. And it then became world news. And we were, like, shocked. You know, we're getting calls from, like, Swedish public radio or, like, Switzerland or the Daily Mail in the UK and... We got so much love in LGBT media in the United States, and our community was just, like, really outspokenly excited about the possibilities, and uh, we were having, like, town halls, and we'd get, like, hundreds of folks coming just to, like, kind of see what was next. And then months later, nothing. The developer was legally obligated to give us funding from their community benefits effort, but... Uh, we didn't realize that they uh, legally didn't have to do it until they broke ground. And so those funds didn't even come in until last year. This is where Arya's work as executive director comes in. 
It's all about filling and funding those gaps, building partnerships with NGOs that help people get access to housing, food, and jobs. We'll be launching guaranteed income for transgender people who are living in abject poverty, and they'll be provided with $1,000 a month for 18 months. And, and that's been a replication of the universal basic income program that happened in Stockton, California, under Mayor Michael Tubbs. To me, those are forms of reparations as, as we fight towards reparations for Black trans people specifically, creating those safety nets for our folks. It's the most important thing that the transgender district is building right now. To have a cultural district, you need to uplift the culture. One way they set about doing that was using flags to make trans support visible. To put out in the world that trans people matter, that they belong here, and that this belonging is recognized in the landscape of the neighborhood. One of the first big things that we wanted to do was to make sure that um, people could see the trans flags. And I used to joke like, oh, I'm transgender nine to five. <laughs> because, you know, when you have the job of intellectualizing your gender identity and then translating that for public consumption and explaining to people what pronouns are and explaining to people um, why trans people are who they say they are every single day, day in and day out, like... <laughs> It, it you grow weary and tiresome. And so when they painted those flags, I remember people texting me photos and then I went outside and I got to see the trans flags on the light pole. And never in my life had I been so proud to be a transgender woman. Um, and like knowing that so many trans folks have come before me to pave the way for the freedoms that we have now and that we've inherited, the little bit of freedoms, honey, but the freedoms nonetheless. It just was such a beautiful moment. Aria and her team at the district used their lived experiences as queer and trans people and the voices in the community to build and shape their programming. This means early in the pandemic, when people in the Tenderloin didn't have the money to pay for basic needs, the cultural district gave out small cash grants. But as they established themselves as leaders in the community, Aria knows they weren't always seen that way. I was always raised, and I'm sure you can relate, that we have to be twice as good to get half as much, right, as white folks. Let's just make it plain. As a leader, you know, there is a double standard. We are triple audited compared to white organizations that may not even be audited by funders. You know, it's interesting because I have those experiences. I'm always a step ahead. So funders will literally be like, you know, we'd like to sort of see where the funds have been spent. In 10 minutes, I'm going through our server like, um, here you go, girl. <laughs> click, 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 click. Here's a year's worth of receipts. And I think because overwhelming majority of philanthropic donors as well as philanthropy institutions are led and facilitated by white people, they tend to inherently trust people that look like them as opposed to us. And so, you know, we have the stigma, especially I'm a blonde black trans woman, like, child by, they think I just got off of the track yesterday. They don't have trust in black leaders. And so you almost have to suspend their disbelief and, and sort of co-facilitate a paradigm shift for them to understand that the people who are facing the disparity should be the ones leading the solutions. 
Everyone says that they want to see trans people empowered, but trust me, and I use my, my girls at the Transgender District as a focus group, the way the world receives them now that they're more economically empowered than they ever have been is such a jarring experience because people almost, it's almost like people love the idea of empowering trans people, but they're not married to it because it then challenges this idea that we should be infantilized. Some of the most beautiful moments of joy that I've had as a black trans person were when I was doing survival sex work in the Tenderloin on Poke and Post. And I was with other girls and we had nowhere to stay. We barely had access to food or shelter or what have you. But the way that we would come together and kiki and laugh and have joy while we were working, like we'd be waiting on the block, you know, for customers to circle around. And that was when we would read each other and laugh and like tell jokes. And those are the moments that stick with me because it reminds me that, you know, even in our disenfranchisement, Black trans joy is a revolutionary act. The self-care of Black bodies is a revolution. I'm just wondering if you had any words about what it means to sort of set a precedent for your community and then have that same revolutionary framework be replicated over and over again in different communities, like with the creation of the American Indian Cultural District. It just shows like the history of in which trans and queer folks have led, I think, that often goes unacknowledged. It's beautiful to see the work that they're doing and um, and they have such a sharp coalition of leaders and I can't wait to see what they're doing because compared to all the other cultural districts, the American Indian District and the Transgender District are almost sort of sister districts because we're having to start from scratch. There aren't any trans-owned businesses yet in in the transgender district. There is Aunt Charlie's, which is LGBT-owned. Our people, in terms of housing, they don't own their homes. Then the next step is, like, claiming ownership. And what does ownership look like for us? Especially in a landscape in San Francisco that is expensive. You know, the transgender district tried to find the resources to buy the Turk and Taylor building that was the site of the Compton's Cafeteria riots. And the private for-profit prison company said we'd have to pay $20 million. What are we getting wrong about the Tenderloin story? The narratives that exist about the Tenderloin are, are tricky because, again, complexities are important. The reality is the city has always treated the Tenderloin as a container space. In some ways, the Tenderloin and the social issues that it has is the fault of decision makers for not prioritizing the needs of the most densely populated neighborhood in the city. The city needs to be accountable for all of the concessions it chose to make to make San Francisco a tech mecca. Thanks to Aria Saeed. Girl, we see you, we love you, and you're an inspiration to us all. And special thanks to Victor Silverman and Susan Stryker. We featured a clip from their documentary, Screaming Queens, The Riot at Compton's Cafeteria. I'm Corey Antonio Rose, and I hosted and produced this episode. The regular host of this show is Pindarvis Harshaw. The regular producer is Marisol Medina Cadena. Jessica Plachik is the editor. Our engineer is Seal Muller. Our engagement team is made up of Ashley Ng, Justin Ibrahimi, and Ria Garwal. Kiana Mogadon is the senior producer of podcasts. 
KQED execs are David Marcus, Holly Kernan, and Jin Chien. Right Nowish is a KQED production. Hi, I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey, that's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.